From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. For a doctor fighting the pandemic, there's no escaping the realities of COVID-19. We can't push death off as affecting other people and other groups because we see them all. We can't externalize or ignore death because we witness and feel it the same way every day, no matter whose name is on the death certificate. We can't hide from the damage this virus causes. The words of a frontline physician, what he hopes people will hear and understand. Then a composer who's using music to address issues like equity, inclusivity, and social justice. You know, this is just me continuing in a very, very long and important tradition of, of artists who are commenting on and reflecting on and representing the times in which they find themselves. I give to CPR because it's just a great thing to support, especially during the pandemic. I felt it was important to pitch in my part. My day is not complete without CPR. And it's my pleasure to be able to give back. We are so grateful to our members who choose to be a part of Colorado Public Radio's community of support. Your donations strengthen the foundation for fact-based journalism and music exploration in Colorado. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel. Jeffrey Sipple's life is consumed by COVID. I see and think about death every day. As a pulmonologist and ICU physician at the UC Health Anschutz Medical Campus in Aurora, Dr. Sipple sees the devastating effects the virus has on the unvaccinated, the lives it takes every day in his hospital. We can't push death off as affecting other people and other groups because we see them all. We can't externalize or ignore death because we witness and feel it the same way every day, no matter whose name is on the death certificate. Frustrated by how many people unvaccinated by choice seem unfazed by what's going on in ICUs across the state, Dr. Sippel penned an essay expressing his concern and his heartache over the devastating toll COVID has had on him, his peers, and those he's fighting to save every day. Dr. Sippel, thanks so much for being here. Happy to be here. Really appreciate your asking me to spend a little bit of time with you this morning. We're now two years plus into this pandemic. Nearly 11,000 Coloradans have died. I just want to give that number some rough context. Imagine the entire population of Yuma County just vanishing. Dr. Sippel, what was the tipping point for you to write this essay? What made you put pen to paper? I put pen to paper for a lot of reasons, and I think probably one of the main driving reasons was the fact that I see the vaccinated camp, if you will, I see the unvaccinated camp, and I just don't see productive dialogue between the two. I think there are missed opportunities. I think that we need to find common ground that we can have a discussion about, and I think that what's been overlooked is the human impact on lives lost, as you just said, by example, hypothetically, Yuma County disappears. Those are shocking numbers. I think people look at those as just another statistic. And I think that does a disservice to those who have passed away, as well as those who are continuing to fight in the healthcare system on a daily basis. With so many deaths happening, and and for such a sustained amount of time, I, I think everyone vaccinated or not, just can't process the amount of death 
you've seen because of COVID. I, I think that that may in some ways be a coping mechanism, don't you? I mean, that is to say, I assume as a physician, you're trained to see death in ways the everyday Coloradan just isn't. I think we all repress these painful and emotional things. It's a natural defense mechanism. But if you use it too much, then it doesn't become a healthy thing. And so we in the healthcare profession, we struggle mightily with this. We have to repress to get through our day. But then at some juncture, we really have to be able to talk about it to decompress in some way, shape, or form. It's different for all people. But what I sense is that people have identified their uh, groups, if you will, their social circles. And they say, oh, death, yeah, it doesn't affect my social circle. I don't have to deal with this. I don't have to even think about it. And I think this lack of appreciation for the other group, if you will, has really uh, impaired people's thought process on this, their understanding of the magnitude and decisions that they make. Could you read that part of your essay about the disconnect people have about COVID deaths, about how it's always just one social group away? I'd be happy to. Everyone's social groups in the United States might be affected firsthand by COVID deaths if deaths were at one per 100 people. Yet, deaths are about one in 300, so most groups haven't seen death firsthand. This means that death happens in someone else's group, not in theirs. However, these numbers overlook a harsh reality. Those of us working in hospitals see everyone's social groups. We can't push death off as affecting other people and other groups because we see them all. We can't externalize or ignore death because we witness and feel it the same way every day, no matter whose name is on the death certificate. We can't hide from the damage this virus causes. I'd like to think that everyone understands and feels the personal impact and sheer magnitude of death from COVID as I do. But since most social circles haven't truly experienced death firsthand, they don't. You mention in your essay that your unvaccinated friends and family just don't understand your reality. What do you want them to know? If you could sit them down and talk to them, what do you want them to know about what you're seeing uh, every day? We all craft our own reality. We all craft our own worldview. What we hope is that between any two people or any two groups of people that we do have some overlap, that we do have some common ground that we can come together on and we can discuss and chat. I think in this situation, my reality is so far removed from other people's realities that it makes discussing these topics difficult. So I would love to be able to merely express this very emotional and difficult topic, death, that really no one wants to talk about. Silly example here. When was the last time you had a cup of tea with someone or dinner with somebody and someone said, hey, let's talk about death? It just doesn't come up. We avoid it. This is a situation where avoiding it has, after two years, become incredibly difficult. It's always difficult for our profession, and we struggle every year with these topics personally. But this really has been a huge exclamation point on that uh, part of our job, which is incredibly emotional and difficult to deal with. I hear the clinical side of what you're talking about. I hear that. And I think um, there might be a a disconnect, like you said, about the emotional side of things, that people aren't there well. Uh, you may be with a patient who is dying of COVID. 
Um, is that what you're trying to get across here to make it less clinical and more heartfelt? Correct. I think if what I tried to do in the essay is not bring in too many numbers and not bring in, in, in facts and objective things for us to talk about. What really is lacking is that understanding of the emotional impact. What really is lacking is that feeling of 900,000 deaths in the United States, 10,000 deaths in Colorado. An example would be, I talked with somebody several months ago, and they said, um, oh yeah, this death thing, I totally understand it. I just got off the phone with my brother-in-law. My brother-in-law lives in Philadelphia, by the way, and he was talking about somebody that he works with and just told me this horrible story about his neighbor's uncle's son who died in the ICU. I appreciate those stories, but it's four degrees of separation between that event and this person that I'm talking with. We're zero degrees of separation in the ICU. So the emotional impact is completely different. It's not to minimize what my friend told me about, but it's merely to illustrate that the magnitude of the impact of death is palpably different. Would you mind reading that part of your essay, please, where you say, we see too much death? We see too much death. We see death at its most uncomfortable point. We see death when no one wants to acknowledge it and when no one wants to talk about it. We see death that tries to hide, but needs to be acknowledged, heard, felt, and accepted. We don't have to like death, but I need my family and friends to understand that we can't deny its reality. I want them to understand that the best way to address the agony of these pandemic deaths is by having all citizens participate in honoring their social contract with society, just as healthcare workers do every day. This might just require them to put their reasons behind them, get vaccinated, and wear masks, because my profession needs their help. You spend a good amount of your essay talking about the reasons people give for choosing not to get vaccinated. Personal freedoms, the quote, independent pioneer spirit that exists across the West, including much of Colorado. And you say those reasons have some truth to them, right? Correct. They do have truth to them. I, I think that if we focus for a minute on freedom of choice, what I feel happens with the freedom of choice discussion is it goes kind of like this. We're Americans. We like freedom of choice. Mic drop. Next question. It's put out there as this sacrosanct thing, this God-given right, who knows, that's inviolable, that can't be challenged. I think that's not correct. I think we need to be able to discuss it more thoroughly. There are many layers to that cake. But one important acknowledgement here is that all choices have a cost. And so even if you choose to get vaccinated, there's a cost. And if you don't choose to get vaccinated, there's a cost. I think that's what's missing is the fact that freedom of choice isn't free and that it has a cost associated with it. In this situation, the cost could be death. And that's a very high cost. So is it not to pass judgment per se or to vilify others who choose one way or or the other, but are we at a stage of the pandemic where judgment is inevitable? Judgment 
is part of human nature. So on one hand, you're correct that it is inevitable. I'm the eternal optimist. I like to think that we can figure out how to discuss things and work our way around being judgmental. Here's an example. If somebody says to me, and I've heard this a lot, oh, I'm healthy. My group's not affected and or I'm not affected by COVID. I'm healthy. I don't need to get a vaccine. What they're doing is they're focusing on one common way that humans make decisions. It's called loss avoidance. What they're really saying is, why would I trade my excellent health for a brain clot or some other side effect of a vaccine? So what they're doing is they're focusing on loss avoidance. Well, why did I get a vaccine and what do I focus on? I focus on loss avoidance also, but here's what I focus on. It's called risk mitigation. It's just the same thing, but it's just spun a little differently. If I look at a group that has a 2% mortality rate with COVID, which is Mm -hmm. everybody, and I say, wow, I have an opportunity to reduce that potential mortality rate to two-tenths of a percent, then what I'm doing is I'm focusing on how do I mitigate risk as opposed to how do I avoid loss. That's very similar, but we need to talk about that and we need to understand, well, why do we view these things differently and how can we get to a common ground? I keep thinking back to, you know, if the effects of what you're seeing in the ICU daily were more obvious, perhaps if symptoms were more obvious, like the plague from so long ago, do you think the seriousness would resonate with more people and and things would be different? There's an interesting book called Tribe by Sebastian Younger, and he talks about this exact thing. His illustration is how do we perceive war in the United States compared to how is war perceived in Israel? In Israel, it is in everybody's backyard. So their palpable appreciation of war is completely different than ours. We see it in 30-second snippets on the news, and then we change the channel. And so uh, obviously that's not correct for everyone, but for the large majority of people in the United States, that's it. So my point of the essay is just that. There's a subset of us in the United States. We are not a small subset. We are living in the trenches, if you will, on the front lines, if you will. And we see and we feel it every day. Other people don't. We need them to feel this. We need them to understand the magnitude of what's happening. So, I mean, is it... Is it showing people? Is it, you know, you know, wringing your hands and say, look at this? Or, or is it just a continual discussion, a drip, drip, drip of, of, of doctors like you, of nurses, of medical professionals saying, this is a huge deal and you're just not getting it? Do you get what I'm trying to say there? Yeah. People need to be willing to listen. Someone very smart said, what good is the First Amendment if no one's listening? So I think step one is we all have to be willing to listen. And I think that we need to get out of our usual circles and we need to listen to other opinions. It's the echo chamber. If we all listen to the same thing every day, then we don't broaden our horizons. We're at a point where we all would benefit from broadening our horizons and listening to the opinions and thoughts that we don't typically listen to. One approach, like you said, it could be the drip, drip, drip. I'm not really sure if I have a perfect answer on this one. But it's time for us to continue discussing it, continue socializing this. I'm very appreciative of Colorado Public Radio being interested in this because it's a topic. Again, death, it's very emotional. 
that people shy from that people I've had people literally turn around and leave a discussion because they don't want to hear about it or talk about it. And we need to figure out how to get past that. Yeah. I mean, we're now well into this pandemic. Do, Do you think people's minds can be changed? Those who choose not to get vaccinated, choose not to wear masks in certain situations. Do you truly believe that you can change their minds? Well, Malcolm Gladwell has a quote that I really like. And he says, it's a privilege to change your mind. I would submit to you that regretfully, our politicians almost never change their mind because when they do, they crucify each other and they hang each other out to dry when they do that. And that's a bad example for us. What we're supposed to do in science is if we made an opinion yesterday and there's new data available today, we're supposed to revisit our position and our opinions and we're supposed to update those. It's a privilege to do that. And so I'm hopeful that more people will acknowledge and realize that being entrenched in an opinion or a position and being unwilling to have it challenged is just not a good thing, that we can do better than that. Doctor, this week, the Colorado chapter of the American College of Emergency Physicians withdrew its request that the governor implement crisis standards of care. Those are the broad emergency protocols for hospitals meant to help them handle a surge of patients. We're seeing reports daily that this current COVID surge is nearing its end and that case numbers are coming down, that Omicron is less severe than other variants. Of course, that doesn't mean it's as innocuous as the common cold by any means. But is there light at the end of the tunnel two years on. Do you see that? I mentioned a little bit earlier, I'm the eternal optimist. And so I'd like to say, yes, there is hope and perhaps Omicron will be the last wave. However, hope is not a strategy. If hope is your option A, you really have to have a robust option B and a robust option C. That's why I think these things are still necessary to talk about. We don't have a lot of tools in the toolbox. The most effective tool in the toolbox is vaccination. Masks also help. There are other tools in the toolbox, but they are much harder to come across. So I'll be optimistic and hopeful that things will improve yet. You and I are approaching the two-year anniversary of this, and we've seen cycles head north, south, east, and west on this. And so it's not fair for us to um, have unchecked optimism We need to have a dose of reality that says, let's continue to plan for clouds on the horizon. I'm speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Sippel. He's a pulmonologist and ICU physician at the UC Health Anschutz Medical Campus in Aurora. He wrote an essay to convey his experiences and his concerns as a doctor on the front lines of the pandemic. We're going to share that with you right now. An ICU doctor's perspective on COVID-19, death, and vaccines by Dr. Jeff Sippel. I see and think about death every day. For two years, death from COVID-19 has happened nonstop in intensive care units just like mine across this country. But when I talk with unvaccinated family and friends about the illness, I sense that they don't understand my reality. I imagine that if they saw and felt death as I do, they would relinquish their unvaccinated state. I imagine if they witnessed the cold, unfeeling reality of a COVID death, they would take any steps possible to avoid this fate, including vaccination. Still, they remain unvaccinated and mask-free, at least in part because they don't see what I see. Across this chasm, I want my family and friends to better understand me and my profession. 
I want them to understand why seeing death influences how I feel about COVID-19 vaccines. I hear their reasons for refusing vaccination. I think I understand their thoughts behind their inaction. Yet I feel their worldview is incomplete because they haven't seen and felt death as I have. Everyone's social groups in the United States might be affected by COVID firsthand if COVID deaths were at one per 100 people. Yet death is about one in 300. So most groups haven't truly seen it firsthand. This means death happens in someone else's group, not in theirs. However, these numbers overlook a harsh reality. Those of us working in hospitals see everyone's social groups. We can't push death off as affecting other people in other groups because we see them all. We can't externalize or ignore death because we witness and feel it the same way every day, no matter whose name is on the death certificate. We can't hide from the damage this virus causes. I'd like to think that everyone understands and feels the personal impact and sheer magnitude of death from COVID as I do. But since most social circles haven't truly experienced death firsthand, they don't. I grew up in rural Montana and I've spent most of my life in the Rocky Mountains. I know the independent pioneer spirit that exists across the West, including much of Colorado. Friends and family have told me in very direct terms that vaccine and mask mandates violate their freedom of choice yet important topics are glossed over when using individual choice as justification to avoid the social responsibility of a pandemic. We must acknowledge that no one with free choice would select death over life except in purely rhetorical discussions. A preventable illness that carries a 2% mortality rate is far more lethal than any illness ever seen in our lifetimes by a factor of 20. Even though COVID deaths are more than double the number of all cancer deaths last year, this still rings hollow for most people. One death is tragic, though seemingly only if you know that person. Nearly 900,000 deaths from this illness likely feels like a faceless statistic to most Americans. It's tragic when death on this scale is glossed over, merely because a freedom of choice mindset prevails unchecked. As jarring as the death toll is, how death unfolds with COVID should be equally eye-opening. Although my profession does an exceptional job of providing comfort in time of need and death, the process of a COVID death can be agonizingly drawn out over days to weeks. The infection slowly turns the person's lungs, which normally hold a few quarts of air in a single breath, into something more like a wet leather satchel that struggles to hold two cups of air, even when placed under immense pressure. I've seen this death too many times. From the outside, it's a death no one should suffer. From the inside, the best I can do is pray we keep our loved ones comfortable and in peace when their time on earth is over. This theoretical freedom of choice leads to nothing more than an empty rhetorical victory when held up against this harsh reality. There is a long list of reasons people share for choosing no vaccines and no masks. They all warrant our consideration, and I try to listen as intently as possible. All these reasons, religious preferences, doing your own research, distrust of science and institutions, opting for natural immunity, good health and countless others, they have points of truth to them. Yet if we feel the ability to make rational decisions is a trait that defines at least a part of our humanity, then we must balance these points against the collective burden of COVID. Although collective burden includes emotionless terms like lost productivity and revenues, 
and personal terms, like inconvenience and hassle. What underlies all this and is never stated is death. It is a death that is personal to nearly 11,000 Colorado citizens and their families. It's a death that happens only after every nook and cranny of the body has been invaded by medical tubes, lines, and drains. It's a death surrounded by unstoppable noise from alarms and bells in a cold and sterile room that feels like a freezing mist. It's death in slow motion that is as unstoppable as the setting sun, a process that feels like a daily bloodletting which will cease only when my profession has no more blood to give. I would like my family and friends to understand that there are millions of healthcare providers in this country working diligently to support our citizens who become infected with COVID. This is what we are trained to do, and we are truly honored to do this work. But we need help. We see too much death. We see death at its most uncomfortable point. We see death when no one wants to acknowledge it and when no one wants to talk about it. We see death that tries to hide but needs to be acknowledged, heard, felt, and accepted. We don't have to like death, but I need my family and friends to understand that we can't deny its reality. I want them to understand that the best way to address the agony of these pandemic deaths is by having all citizens participate in honoring their social contract with society, just as healthcare workers do every day. This might just require them to put their reasons behind them get vaccinated, and wear masks because my profession needs their help. Mm. That must be cathartic reading that. I mean, I know writing it is one thing, but to, to read that out loud, how does that make you feel? I appreciate being able to read it. The last paragraph in particular, I choked up a little bit. I hope I made it through. <laughs> but it really is cathartic to write it, as you said, it just allowed me to get a lot of thoughts out of my head that have been stuck in there for a while. And reading it also is a really good exercise for me. Dr. Sippel, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely. Appreciate the opportunity to discuss and read this essay with you. Dr. Jeffrey Sippel is a pulmonologist and ICU physician at the UC Health Anschutz Medical Campus in Aurora. We'll post his essay at CPR.org in today's Colorado Matters podcast. When we come back, a milestone, a million miles away from Earth. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is CPR News and KRCC. Read with Colorado Matters. For Turn the Page, we've chosen All That Is Secret by Patricia Raybon, a mystery set when the KKK loomed large. A young black theologian gets a telegram to come back to Colorado and find out why her father was killed. But she could be a victim herself. Read All That Is Secret and meet the author virtually February 8th. Details at CPR.org slash turn the page. NASA's $10 billion mission that could transform our knowledge of the universe achieved a critical milestone this week. The James Webb Space Telescope reached its final destination and entered into an orbit around the Sun. The telescope is now about a million miles away from Earth. It launched into space a month ago. That's when we spoke with Mackenzie Listrup about the mission. She's an astrophysicist from Colorado-based Ball Aerospace, which built the telescope's unique optical system. 
Space Telescope was really designed to answer some fundamental questions in astronomy and in physics. So it's designed to look at the earliest galaxies and the earliest you know, luminous objects in the universe and to watch those galaxies evolve over time. And it's designed to characterize the atmospheres of extrasolar planets to try to find habitable worlds beyond our solar system. In order to peer so far into the universe, the telescope uses infrared technology. The earliest galaxies, I mean, you know, they're, they're 13 and a half billion light years away. And due to the effects of general relativity in part, the, the light from those galaxies, it actually like the wavelengths stretch out. And by the time they get to us, they're brightest in the infrared. And so we really have to have an infrared telescope to peer back into the earliest galaxies. And then on the other side of looking at extrasolar planets, it turns out that some of the key interesting atmospheric gases and components are quite bright in the infrared and have really important signatures in the infrared that can tell us about life habitability. The James Webb Space Telescope is 100 times more powerful than the Hubble Space Telescope. Its mirror measures 21 feet in diameter, and it's not like the mirror hanging in your home. It's actually gold. It's coated in gold. It's a very thin, very thin layer of gold. But it turns out that gold is very reflective in the infrared, so it turns out that that's the best surface. But of course, we're not going to make a giant telescope made out of gold because that would be impractical <laughs> and, and heavy. And so the, the substrate of the mirror, the kind of the, the metal behind that gold surface is actually made of beryllium. And beryllium is really, uh, it's very lightweight for its other properties. It can handle temperature variations. It can handle very cold environments, which the Webb telescope will, will be held very cold. And it has just a lot of great properties that made it perfect for Webb. But of course, we, we actually coat it in that layer of gold for the reflectivity. You heard her say the telescope will be held very cold. It has a five-layer shield that is always facing the sun to protect it from the sun's intense heat. And it has other technology to ensure it stays chilly. And if you think about, you know, if you're using your laptop for a long time, the electronics get hot, right? They generate heat because they use power. And because we're looking in the infrared, if we don't keep this telescope cold the heat that's generated by all the electronics in the instruments and in the motors, that would all basically wash out the signal from the astronomy objects we're trying to observe. And so to, to make sure that we have the, the best possible sensitivity to those distant faint objects, the whole telescope is held at about minus 370 degrees Fahrenheit. That's the operating temperature. And just for, for reference, Absolute zero is about 460 Fahrenheit, and we're operating, you know, 110 degrees Fahrenheit above that. Now that the James Webb Space Telescope is in position, engineers will begin meticulously aligning the mirror, which had to be folded to fit inside the launch rocket. They'll also test and activate the telescope's instruments. That'll take about three more months. We should start seeing the telescope's first infrared images later this summer. For Mackenzie Listrup, it's a moment that is years, even decades, in the making, and well worth the wait. I'm really excited to learn about, uh, you know, the habitability of extrasolar planets. That's, uh, you know, a big interest of mine. But honestly, it's always going to be about the questions we don't even know how to ask yet, right? All of the things that are just completely new to us. (laughs) 
Mackenzie Listrup is an astrophysicist and the general manager of civil space at Ball Aerospace in Broomfield. Ball built the optical system for the James Webb Space Telescope, which reached its final destination a million miles from Earth on Monday. We spoke with Listrup about the mission when the telescope launched in December. With a recording at the top of the charts, Omar Thomas was well on his way to becoming a mainstay in the world of jazz. But in time, he realized he could use his gifts in a different way. That's from Thomas's piece, Of Our New Day Begun, and one example of how the composer now uses music to address issues like equity, inclusivity, and social justice. After recently completing a residency with the Colorado Symphony on Thursday, Thomas will be the keynote speaker at the Colorado Music Educators Association's annual conference. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Nathan. You live in Texas, but as I mentioned, you've been spending a lot of time in Colorado lately. Are you uh, ready to move here yet? Um, depends on what these housing prices keep doing. Might not be a bad idea. (laughs) Well, don't look here. Uh, The prices are still pretty insane here too. Uh, Your day job is an assistant professor of composition and jazz studies at the University of Texas, but you do spend a lot of time traveling across the country, I understand, speaking, doing residencies like the one with the Colorado Symphony. It sounds like you're you're something of a musical evangelist. Uh, What was the thinking behind this? Um, you know, this all happened so fast for me. <laughs> I wrote that piece of our new gun, which existed first as a wind ensemble piece before I was commissioned to turn it into an orchestral work. And that happened, I believe, in 2015 or 16. And um, and then it was just kind of like, you know, a roller coaster took off. And I think what helps is that I also have an education background, a degree in music education. So, you know, I, I feel comfortable doing this work and, and working with uh, young people and working with ensembles. And so in a way, everything that I'm doing now is kind of, I feel like it's what I studied and trained to do uh, for a number of years. Obviously, the members of the Colorado Symphony know and love music already. So I, I can't imagine it's the same as, say, teaching wide-eyed college students. When you come here and spend time with them, what are you hoping to accomplish with the symphony? I mean, first of all, it's just an honor to have um, such an acclaimed uh, group of professional musicians play my music. Um, And if anything, you know, if if I'm given the the proper time to discuss it, I just I, I hope the same thing for the orchestra, the symphony orchestra that I do with any of the ensembles that I work with. I want them to understand what went into the creation of this piece, specifically with Of Our New David Gunn. I want them to understand that that piece is not about me. It is not for me. It was written for the uh, surviving members of Mother Emanuel Church and their families to Mm -hmm. let them know that we saw them and and we felt their pain and that we were holding them tighter. Um, Using the Black National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing as the Cornerstone Melody is is really an educational outreach. It has become, um, surprisingly or maybe unsurprisingly, there are millions of people out there in this country who have no idea that there is a Black National Anthem, even though it's existed for over a century. 
So I don't think that the outreach um, and the intention of the piece changes depending on the ensemble. And we heard a, a bit of our new day begun in the intro there. Obviously, as you said, this composition is rooted in the spiritual lift every voice and sing, the, the Black right. National Anthem. Um, and also this piece was written in response as a tribute to the nine people who were killed by a shooter in 2015 at the Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. How daunting <laughs> was it to take that classic piece, lift every voice and sing, and try to make it your own? As we heard, the, you hear it. You hear it when you're hearing your piece. Just little bits of it kind of come through uh, as you listen. Sure. Uh, Nathan, to be honest with you, the hardest part about writing that piece was agreeing to do it. Really? Um, because at the time, I had not written a, a, a wind ensemble work kind of of that scale before, especially about something... Um, uh, so immensely emotional and weighted. Uh, so as soon as I, A, agreed to do it, thanks dad, by the way, he's the one who told <laughs> me to call, to call uh, Dr. Gary Shallert back and to say yes. I hadn't planned on saying yes because I was just so freaked out by the commission itself. Because it would be too daunting for you to do, you think? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I just, I, well, the most daunting part to me was was Dr. Schallert telling me that the world premiere of the piece would be at the Gilliard Center, which is just diagonal from Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, and that he wanted to invite members of the church to the world premiere. So it just took on this level of reality that, you know, I just didn't know that I was ready for. But actually knowing that the members of the church were going to be in attendance made the piece that much easier for me to write, because I knew that that it had to encompass and embody um, sounds that that uh, belong and come from the Black church tradition. Because the last thing I'd want to do is to write something, you know, kind of esoteric and say, you know, this is about you, I promise. I wanted them to hear their experience and feel the love in every note and every phrase. So that's why I chose Lift Every Voice and Sing as a cornerstone melody. That's why there are... Um, a calls towards gospel and blues traditions in the piece. So getting back to the lift every voice and sing, did you get blowback from anyone wondering if you were tampering with perfection? No. And, you know, and the other reason that I chose to, to, to use that piece is because there are so few symphonic settings of it. And I just right. felt like a huge missed opportunity. This isn't the first time that your compositions have reflected the tenor of the times we live in. About 10 years ago now, you wrote, we Will Know, an LGBT civil rights piece in four movements. Uh, let's take a listen to that. That was from the fourth movement of the suite, titled May 9th, 2012, which is the day that then-President Barack Obama endorsed marriage equality. We Will Know came after you had already had a best-selling jazz album. 
Was that a shift of some sort for you where speaking up and speaking out on uh, social issues perhaps became more important than uh, commercial success? I don't think that it was. Um, that piece felt very organic. I didn't have to, to struggle with myself about whether or not I should write that piece. It just felt like the thing that needed to happen at the time. And, you know, you played that last movement. Originally, the piece ended with the third movement, the meditation, which had a very heavy um, um, ending to it. And, uh, and, you know, and then May 9th happened and I felt like this would be a great way to joyfully uh, cap off the suite. No, it, it felt very organic. Obviously, there are a great many words written about these same issues. I, I wonder if you feel there's something more powerful when the emotions are coming through music as opposed to words? You know, this is just me continuing in a very, very long and important tradition of, of artists who are commenting on and reflecting on and representing the times in which they find themselves. And it's funny because I say that sentence and part of that sentence is a reworking of a Nina Simone quote, the definition of an artist, which I mm. use um, to kick off the, the liner notes in the booklet. Um, where she says, as an artist, it's my duty to reflect the times and the situations in which I find myself. And, you know, she, she's absolutely correct. <laughs> yeah. That's why it's always hilarious to me when, when people who love a musical artist get all in their feelings when this artist has a political statement or something, as if, you know, music and, and art and artivism haven't always been intertwined. I, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, of course. You know, I love your music. Stick to music. Is that exactly? What yeah. Going along with that, give us a bit more of your process for, for writing these pieces. Um, well, I mean, the process is very different depending on the situation and the circumstance. Um, with with we will we will know. Um, gosh, I sat down and I kind of created a meditative space based on a chord progression. Um, and then I just fleshed it out from there. And originally, I didn't know that this piece would end up having words. And, and it kind of hit me like a bolt of lightning one day that this first movement needed to exist, this hymn. With the storm I was very depressed about it because I'm no lyricist at all. And I was very nervous about having to sit down and to write these words. And funny enough, I got home that afternoon and I sat down and I had all four stanzas written in about nine minutes. And then, you know, um, I felt like it was very important to me in the last movement to use uh, We Shall Overcome there as the cornerstone melody as a way to... Um, to kind of show all of my different identities intersecting in this moment. So there's something very personal for me about that fourth movement. Whereas, you know, uh, um, with Of Our New Day Begun, I really had to think about the journey. And I had to think about how people, how I wanted people to feel by the end of this piece. And I also had to realize that this piece isn't about me. And, and regardless of how I felt 
um, about that entire incident, I needed to kind of temper that um, and to get myself out of the way so that I can let the music create the journey. And there was a moment in the middle where I just kind of let myself rage, but everything else, it's, it's like I said, it's not about me. It's about the members of Mother Emanuel Church. Um, and so I kind of wanted to take them on a process of healing and catharsis finally to, to the corral at the very end, which I always think about as the first Sunday after the shooting had happened, when that healing process began, when they came back together and, and decided to move forward, what that must have felt like. As we mentioned earlier, you're giving the keynote address Thursday at the Colorado Music Educators Association's annual conference in Colorado Springs. The theme this year, appropriately enough, is celebrate one another. What will you convey in your remarks? <laughs> oh, this question is so hard for me to answer. You're going to have to do a lot of editing. On this one, I promise you. Um, and the reason is just because I've spent so long and so much bandwidth working on this speech that when I have to recall any part of it, <laughs> my brain is like, I am at capacity. We are not doing this now. But um, <laughs> I, I think a lot of, uh, well, um, I wish I had my laptop in front of me. I could cheat and look. Um, is basically, it's actually dealing with our inner musician and what that person sounds like, what that individual, you know, what it sounds like and, and questioning whether or not uh, music academia actually spends time cultivating that voice or if it just trains us to be medium for other people's um, artistic expressions. And so really understanding if we are all musical beings as we claim to be and we have studied for decades to perfect our craft, well then what does that person sound like? <laughs> if you didn't have any music in front of you, you didn't have any A2s memorized, you didn't have any excerpts to go off of, and you just have to give that inner musician a voice for five minutes, would you feel comfortable doing that? And what would that person sound like? And how can we help our young people in this field start to cultivate that idea of their musical being out of the context of of uh, the music that we give them to play. Beyond notes on a page. Exactly, exactly. Getting away for, or recognizing the limitations of notated music and, and kind of leaning more into communal music. Yeah. Um, in June 2020, the association created a task force looking at issues of diversity, equity, inclusion, and access and asking questions like whether the classroom instructors look like the students sitting before them or if school communities perhaps would be better served by having a mariachi ensemble with mm -hmm. or instead of a traditional band. Mm -hmm. I know you've talked about the support you received from family and teachers growing up. Mm -hmm. How often do you find yourself wondering who might have been lost out there because there weren't programs like this in place or there were kids who didn't get the support that you did? Well, that's, wow. <laughs> that's a heavy question. Um, I think about that in the context of the music that I write um, with regards to sitting in, the, in these ensembles. You know, I've been playing in bands since fourth grade and, you know, I could I, it, would, it would take many, many fingers to count how many Irish and English folk dances I've played. Yeah. But the number of pieces that I've played that have been told authentically from the black perspective, I I might need one hand, maybe, in all of those years, excluding playing in the jazz ensemble because jazz is rooted in the Black tradition. Um, and so the music that I create now is about what 
what I might have wanted to play when I was in those ensembles, what a young black musician could really take ownership of and say, you know what, I know this music. For the first time, I know this music. I hear myself um, uh, reflected on the stage and now everybody is now in my world. Does it seem uh, affirming of the work you're doing, what, what you're seeing? Oh, absolutely. Um, and it's something that I don't take for granted. Um, I'm grateful for it every day. And uh, if anything, I hope that my presence and my voice and all of these travels that I do might give other young musicians permission to show up um, authentically in the music that they create if they feel like they are not represented uh, on that stage or in their music folders or in their music programs. Omar, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. Thanks. Thank you so much, Nathan. Omar Thomas is an assistant professor of composition and jazz studies at the University of Texas. He recently completed a residency with the Colorado Symphony, and tomorrow will give the keynote address at the annual Colorado Music Educators Association Conference. Thanks for joining us today, and to the Colorado Matters team who keeps us in tune, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.